Hey there, and welcome to One Sweet Dream. I'm your host, Diana Erickson, and uh, today we are going to reprise and revisit the episode, The Making and Breaking of the Fab Four Image with author and historian, Aaron Torkelson Weber. This interview is actually a compilation of two interviews, both done in the fall of 2020. This is part one, and there will be a part two at some point. I will announce it when it's coming out. Now, as I've mentioned, I will occasionally provide a preamble or reflections on the episode when I'm inspired to do so. And today I am inspired to do so. However, this time I'm going to place it at the end of the episode because I want to reference a conversation that Aaron and I had in this interview. So if you're looking for it, it's after the episode. Also, as a quick reminder, if you're looking for other Once We Dream episodes, most have moved to the Patreon site, which is patreon.com forward slash Once We Dream. So if you'd like to access them on your own schedule, or you'd like to support the podcast or be a part of the podcast community or access any additional content, please consider joining. I'd love to have you there, and I really sincerely appreciate all support. If you have any questions or comments about the episode, please feel free to leave a comment or question in social media on uh, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. I will post about the episode there. Or you can leave a comment on the podcast website, or you can email the podcast at onesweetdreampodcast at gmail.com. Okay, so um, this episode doesn't really require any additional setup. So let's just jump into my interview with the marvelous Aaron Torkelson Weber, and I'll catch up with you on the other side of the interview. Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Hi, Tanya. Hi, Diana. Hey, so what's on the agenda for today? Well, this is going to be the first part of my conversation with the lovely and brilliant Erin Torkelson Weber. Ooh, cool. So she wrote the book, The Beatles and the Historians, right? Yeah, which I love. Erin, of course, is a professor of American history, and as you said, she wrote that book, which is about the historiography of the Beatles. Right, and it's the analysis of the writing of history, right? That's basically what it right. is. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's basically looking at how a story was created in order to understand the biases, the holes, the agendas, you know, so that we can eventually get to a, a more informed perspective, you know, more truthful perspective, mm -hmm. which obviously is what I'm trying to do with my podcast um, by looking at the Beatles story through a new lens. Right. So it just seemed like ideal for me to talk to her. Yeah. So it's looking at how their story, as we understand it right now, has been created. Right, right. Because I think that, you know, a lot of people just think it's been told, mm -hmm. you know, um, but it hasn't been, you know. For example, Rolling Stone has been very influential in constructing the Beatles story or what we think happened. And their version of the story is largely based on the narrative created by Lennon and Ono in their 1970 interview, Lennon Remembers. Now, John Lennon recanted and disowned this story a few years after giving it, but Rolling Stone has continued to sell this story for almost 50 years 
because, as Erin says in her book, it has an agenda to stand by its original narrative because it's so important to the magazine's mythology and credibility. Sure. So they continue to promote this story, which then impacts the Beatles' right. story, you know? Um, so it suggests yeah. that the, the way the story has been told isn't the full picture. Right, exactly. In fact, you know, Erin has said that we are really, like 50 years after the breakup, we're really just getting to the point where we can objectively start to look at the story, which is fabulous for me to have a podcast right now. So does that mean it leads to revisionism? Uh, yeah, maybe. But Aaron's point of view is that revisionism isn't necessarily a dirty word, that in fact, we need to be constantly revising the story based on new information. So, so what did you guys talk about then? Well, we had a couple of really fascinating conversations. Um, we discussed the breakup, obviously, because mm -hmm. it seems like all roads with me lead to the, that subject. Um, but we also had a great chat about the rather unexplored dynamic between John Lennon and Linda McCartney, which both Aaron and I are interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and both of these issues we discussed in, in what is going to be the second part of this interview. Okay. But what we discussed today, or what we're going to focus on today in this interview, is the Fab Four image or the original Beatles image or narrative and how it was created, what it is, how truthful it is, and how the Beatles desperately tried to break out of it. Hmm. We talked about how important the films were in terms of creating this image mm -hmm. and how they tried to break out of it with certain interviews they did. And so specifically, mm -hmm. we spent some time on the Cleve interviews and Hunter Davies' official biographies. I loved the Cleve interviews. Oh, me too. They're so illuminating. And it's pretty incredible because it's before the spin has been set. So you can look back and say, well, what were they saying at the time? Mm -hmm. What surprised you about them when you read them? Well, I, I think it's interesting because I feel like the four of them as a whole, they all balance each other out, right? Like they, they, so many of them have such extremes that the other, like, like Paul and John seem to be the most, well, John especially seems the most extreme out of all of yeah, them, yeah, right? Yeah. But yeah. Paul himself seems to be, you know, he's just, he's just got this like voracious curiosity about the world and he's just, is, he's just seems very, very thirsty for, for knowledge and, and he just wants to know everything. Whereas George and Ringo seem a little bit more subdued, a little bit more, I mean, I guess for lack of a better word, just more introverted, right? I mean, I think, I was just thinking about this, like if I, if I were to be any of the Beatles, if I was like, like one of the Beatles, it'd probably, I'd probably be the most like George. <laughs> I think <laughs> not that I'd want to be the most like George, but I think I would be the most like George. And I guess that's mostly because he's, he just comes across as more moderate. He's not so extreme, but if I yeah. could be any of them, I don't know. I mean, it's a toss up, I guess, between John and Paul. I like that John, I, I, I like that he just seems so, he just seems like the perfect rock star in so many ways. Right. Like, I mean, he just in, in his extreme behavior, yeah, but Paul, yeah. what I really like about him, too, is just that he just seems so passionate about everything. So, but I do think yeah. that I'd probably be the most like George. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because I think that George is probably the most popular Beatle these days. And I think really? one of the reasons, yeah, yeah, there was an article about that. And I think it's just because a lot of people at the end of the day are like, well, I kind of just you know, feel like I'm most like George, you know, because oh, like you said, okay. Paul, Paul and John are just, 
they are they're kind of gods and they're kind yeah. of like they're so extreme right. and you know and George is the most I, relatable right I mean he did he didn't he asked to be successful he didn't ask to be famous and I kind of like that too you know he's just sort of like famous as part of it and I could take it or leave it yeah I mean what surprised you or what challenged your opinions of the Beatles when you read these interviews like individually um oh god for me when I read those I mean, I love her take on John Lennon, mm -hmm. you know, being kind of imperious and being kind of extreme and going all in on things. Yeah. But he's also, you know, the sort of like peace guru image makes him out to be so serious and intellectual. And, and you know, maybe that's an aspect of John, but this John is just more fun. He's and the child, he, this one, this article. He's, he's, yes. the, he's the child and he's the Consumer, and he's the the one that wants to you know his favorite thing is like a gorilla suit i love that a gorilla the, suit his, i know yeah. and he's playful yes you know yes 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 and he he's just like screw it this is the best thing about being famous bring it yeah and i love that yes and i love the fact that he well you'd be like this right you'd be you'd be you <laughs> might like be john <laughs> a little like john a little like paul i mean that's the thing is we're probably a little bit like all of yeah, them right. which is why it's fun to read but yeah this idea that i love the fact that he just bought all the chocolate and the gorilla suit and he wants to play mm -hmm. and he's kind of like saying money is a good thing like i like because these guys are from poor families yeah. you know like relatively poor families i mean john's not quite so much but still he wasn't well to do and there's something fun about being a rock star oh totally. the way he talks about, absolutely the way he talks about it yes that's what I, and, I, I i like that about john too i, I like that he he just goes to such extremes with anything. If he likes something, he buys all of them. He doesn't have yeah, one car. He has like a billion of them. He doesn't, yeah. you know, just dress dress in a fancy way. No, no, he puts a gorilla suit on. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I love the fact that he's disappointed that they aren't all running around in their gorilla suits. Like that is so amazing. I love that. So John's off on his own trip and it's kind of like, you're right. Like he's like childlike and frustrated that nobody's playing with him as much as he wants right. them to be playing with him. <laughs> I think it's amazing that Cleve, you know, there, there wasn't that many women that interviewed them or did profiles on them. And that to me, these are among the best profiles hmm. of the the Beatles. Hmm. Like I don't know if it just takes a woman's, you know, different perspective, or she doesn't take them quite as seriously as the, the male journalists did, or whatever. But she was able to capture them. What I loved about her comments about Paul was I think she flagged some elements of Paul that are not really represented in popular culture. You know, she she basically talks about his ambition and his curiosity. Hmm and his intelligence, mm -hmm. like his shriveling wit. She actually portrays him in a very different way. Like the, the person that she describes is so much sharper and on and lit and driven. Yeah, way more appealing would, than, than he comes across in other articles. Right. There's kind of like a sharpness yes. about her version of Paul, which I think is much, much truer. And she gets the fact that he's so complex, mm. like, and she gets the fact that there is a private man behind it, which again, you know, I think Hunter Davies said like, how did we all miss this about Paul in the sixties? How did we miss his complexity? And it's like, well, she didn't. Yeah. But I think that, that popular culture did, you well, know? Well, they like to simplify things, I think, too, to say, you know, this is this guy. This is like in one adjective, this is who this right. is. And exactly. And then for George, 
I loved his honesty about the fact, like there was something so sweet about his honesty. Like yes. Patty, Patty wants him to be writing more beautiful lyrics mm-hmm. and you know, that he's working on it and that he has these interests, um, you know, outside of the Beatles that he's exploring. Like, yes. like you're right. I mean, he just seems a little bit more humble. Like he's got humble and he's got outside interests and, and he's very well you know, rounded like, too. Right. Like, and he seems, he just seems like a reasonable young man. <laughs> right. And, and, and Ringo, I mean, again, she sort of gives Ringo short shrift as everyone does, mm-hmm. but you kind of think like Ringo's is probably the place where you'd want to hang out because Ringo and Maureen seem like they're just cool, fun people. Well, his favorite room in his house is his pub, right? <laughs> and I, I know. and I also love that he wanted to, like, he, he comes across as kind of an introvert and like private, da, 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 but at the same time, he wants to be unforgettable, right? Like, yeah. I love that. Like, and I love that, that complexity of that too, which, you know, again, we all have to a certain right. extent. And it, yeah, exactly. And I think it's, you know, still to this day, Ringo hasn't fully been uncovered. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like she got how complex and brilliant Paul was, but I think she sort of, again, underestimated Ringo. And so I discuss all of these interviews with Aaron and I would recommend that everyone um, go and find them. I just think there's such a great contemporaneous look at them, mm-hmm. at the at the Beatles and where they were at. And it's pretty different than the post-breakup spin. All right, well, I can't wait to hear the interview. Yes, well, I'm, I look forward to sharing it. And, um, and please stay tuned for part two as well, which was, I think, equally interesting. Here we go. Today I have the absolute pleasure of speaking to Erin Torkelson Weber, who is a professor of American history at Newman University and author of The Beatles and the Historians, an analysis of writings about the Fab Four. And she also co-founded the wonderful blog, Beatle Bio Review. So hi, Erin, thank you for being here. Hi, Diana. Just to let you know and your audience know, I did not get to pick the title of the book. That was the publisher's <laughs> choice. It was That's not my sexy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I actually proposed something with historiography in the title, and they said, historiography does not sell books. <laughs> they said it more diplomatically than that, but they made it clear. That's not a word we want in the title. Oh, well, you know what? That actually answers one of my questions, because I always thought it was interesting that you wrote The Beatles and the Historians when you deal with historiography. And so that actually answers why they put that. I guess they thought historian was sexier. I guess so, because obviously there's nothing as sexy as historians. (laughs) Well, I actually find the subject very, very sexy. So I am thrilled to be speaking with you today because, you know, as I've mentioned to you, your book has been very, very influential on the subject of the Beatles narrative and how it's evolved and um, what elements have impacted the story and how it's been manipulated. And I think this is something that should be thought about more today. So I'm thrilled that your book is out there and I hope that people read it because 
not only is it really interesting to sort of read and understand how the, the story evolved and what impacted it, I think that it contains a lot of great information about the Beatles. Like it's a really enjoyable read, even if you're a casual fan, it contains so many great quotes, so many, so much great information that I think that it should be just read as a Beatles book too, as well. Well, great. I hope so. I hope a lot of people read it for that reason, but primarily to really look at the methodology that it includes, because you can use it to not only evaluate the Beatles story, but also evaluate any historical subjects, or in a lot of cases, modern subjects as well. That leads to the question of what is historiography? Historiography is a million dollar word, and yes. it's a term that you're not really introduced to unless you are a history major. And it's basically the story of how a particular historical event or individual has been told over time. And it involves the differing versions of that event or individual. World War I is a subject of very strong historiographical debate. It's absolutely fascinating. If anyone is interested in World War I as, just as a historical subject, I would emphasize to them very strongly that they need to study the historiography of it as well. Because the reality is that you don't really know a subject until you know the historiography. Right. And I think it's really interesting that you've taken that type of analysis and applied it to the Beatles, which I think is a subject that absolutely benefits from this kind of study. And so thank you for doing that. Oh, you're welcome. I think so, too. And it's really important because, as you've said in the book, they are an important cultural phenomenon. You know, it's not just some random band. This is this is an important part of the cultural history of the 20th century. Oh, absolutely. Their story fits perfectly into the historiographical pattern. There was the official promoted Beatles story, which left a powerful imprint. This official version publicly and abruptly collapsed. The version that followed it depended heavily on primary sources and incomplete information and was partisan and incorrect. Then secondary sources began to insert themselves, but it still lacked the distance and demonstrated bias. And that eventually, once an adequate amount of time has passed, previously unreleased, overlooked, unavailable primary sources become available. And so a more sound narrative emerges challenging the prevailing orthodoxy. That's what you said in your book. And actually, I can see that the, the number five, the, the last phase, is really something that we're entering into now, which is why it's really interesting to be a Beatles fan right now. Yeah, I'm very intrigued to see where Beatles historiography is going to go from this point, particularly with the Internet and the abundance of primary sources that are available now that weren't available 20, 30 years ago. Right. I mean, I'm really critical of, of authors, you know, what, I, what I've called is like shoddy researching. But in some ways, you know, I don't know 20 years ago if they had any means of knowing that this, you know, small interview was given in 1974 by George Harris. You know, whatever mm -hmm. it was, I don't know if they actually were able to track those things down in the way that we can right now. I mean, there's some incredible blogs that are collating so much information that I believe tells a quite different story. Well, I think you still could have tracked them down. Okay, so I guess I can blame the authors for being lazy <laughs> and <laughs> a little shoddy. But, um, but anyways, it is a good time right now. You have to consider the cultural context and the influences, the agendas, everything that goes into people's writing and their perspectives. Right, that's 
a fundamental part of historical methodology. Any any source you're looking at, any interview that you're reading or watching, I mean, the first thing you're supposed to do, whether it's mass media or really anything else, is say, can I trust the material that these people are giving me? One point that you make in your book that I, I loved was you said that you were driven to do this partly by a desire to explore the Beatles from a new perspective, you know, to shed new light on the Beatles as an original way to look at the band's story, which has become enmeshed in myth. And, and I think you absolutely have done that. And I think that I loved it because that's really what I'm trying to do, because I don't think that the, the Beatles story is finished. And I read that even with the newest Norman Paul McCartney book that some of the reviews were like, is there anything left to say about Paul? It's like, yeah, because nobody gets him. You know, if you keep repeating the same information, it's not going to provide anything new, but there definitely is a different story to be told. Absolutely. And perspective plays a crucial role in this. Your area of expertise, if you will, that you are approaching the band from is crucial to that. We've had so many rock and roll journalists and musicologists analyze the band and credit to them because they've produced some excellent work. But we need to get some sociologists examining the Beatles. We need to get some psychologists examining the Beatles. We need to get more historians examining the Beatles. And the reality that we've had a very narrow demographic of male baby boomer rock and roll journalists from the United States or the United Kingdom almost exclusively dominating the story of, well, I guess I should say the interpretation of the band is a major weakness in their historiography. Yeah, there's such a homogeneity in terms of their point of view, um, the experiences that they're bringing you know, and, and I tend to see that there's certain assumptions that they all bring. We have, again, 99% of the books about them, the articles about them, all those things are provided by this very narrow demographic that really keeps approaching the band's story from the same angle. Yep. And I think there are a lot of different angles to look at them by, basically. Oh, so do I. And I I find it exhausting every time there's an interview with somebody, you know, a new author, you know, there's been a couple of uh, new books that have come out this year. And I'm always disappointed because they are, the ones that are coming out are still from the same generation, the same demographic, and they're still telling the same story. And they don't answer any of my questions or thoughts on the matter. And I, I just think that it, to me, it suggests that the, the story, the narrative really requires some new voices. One of the things, one of the hot debates in Beatledom right now is the, the concept of revisionism. And I wanted to talk to you about this because you make the point that revisionism is not necessarily a bad thing, that simply because a narrative has been revised does not mean that the new revised version is incorrect. Absolutely. Um, That's something that a lot of people don't understand because revisionism is used as a dirty word and as an insult. But if it's evidence-based revisionism, then there's nothing wrong with it. And in fact, we have revised our interpretations of numerous events and individuals throughout history. And again, World War I would be one example. Again, as long as it's evidence-based, then there's nothing wrong with it. And new evidence is almost always coming out, even on subjects that in some cases are hundreds of years old. 
With all of these new, these reissues of the albums, the White Album, Sgt. Pepper, you know, uh, Giles Martin has dug into, you know, he's hearing some of the studio chatter that we haven't had access to before. And, you know, the people that have access to that have, have said that, well, it's surprising. There was, you know, there was more camaraderie, more fun uh, in the chatter from the White Album that, than we necessarily thought, which actually supports that it wasn't that bad. You know, like later, immediately in the breakup of the Beatles, you know, George and John really talked about it being a terrible time when they were breaking up and, and that narrative was bought into. And so now that we have mm. some additional evidence, there are some people that are very open to this, but I do see a lot of pushback too, that it's like, oh, come on, we're, this is just revisionism. We're trying to change the story. And it's like, well, maybe we need to change the story. Well, in that case, you have to look at the quality of the evidence. And the reality, that, the reality is that recorded conversations from the making of the album are going to be among the most credible of sources because they are simply sources that existed to make a record. They weren't created with an overt agenda beyond recording the Beatles as they operated in that time period. This is something that you, the, a point that you make in your book is that historians prefer private or they put more um, credibility on conversations that were not meant for public consumption because they don't have the agenda or they may not have the agenda. Right. They don't have as overt an agenda. And we have hundreds of standards, unluckily, un I guess you could say, <laughs> that you're supposed to apply to various sources. But really, that's one of the fundamental basics that you learn, that if you have, for example, a diary entry by Abraham Lincoln or a private letter by Abraham Lincoln saying one thing, but you have him saying something differently in a public speech, then you can take source A and source B and say, well, if this was a diary entry, then it wasn't intended for public consumption. So we are going to assign greater credibility to what he said in the diary entry or the letter than what he said in the public speech about how he really felt about a certain situation or a certain individual. Okay, well, that's good. That's good information for everybody to know that that their studio chatter is important historical records that they should not be dismissed. You know, I know we don't have the full picture that they only give us a sense of what's going on, but it is important to know and it's important to update our version of the story with this information. Uh, one bad bit on, on behalf of me, sir. One, 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 one bad bit in that one. Hey, hey, hey. A bad bit. It wasn't oh, yeah. a break, so I got a bit. Take 19. <laughs> Okay, so now that we know what historiography is, the how of a story, how it gets constructed, by whom, with which data, and with what objectives. Let's dig into our main topic, which is how the Fab Four image was constructed and how truthful it really is. What we're going to go through is 
the original story, how it progressed, how it changed, what impacted it to try and get to an even better understanding by understanding all of these factors. Absolutely. You have to understand or at least have a basic knowledge of a historiography of a subject, I would argue, before you are actually an expert in the subject. Okay, so the first thing that I want to talk about, something that you've called the original Fab Four narrative, our original view of the Beatles, you have three elements to it. Am, am I representing this right? Yes. The fact that they were the best of friends. And then this idea that they were these ideal guys. You know, this is the second element. This really idealized version of them is also very whitewashed. And then the third part is the Lennon-McCartney um, dyad, this, this partnership that is core to what makes them really, really special and unique. Yes. Uh, what I find is that when you look at the press conferences and the interviews, the authorized biography, the movies, all of these sort of things, that these are the three pillars of the original version of the Beatles. This is what they are selling and the people around them are selling. Spoiler alert here, uh, that they actually are all true, but limited. But certainly when you go through all three of these pillars, there are elements that are very true to all of them. I think so. I think... It's a simplified version or what you may regard as an incomplete version, but I do regard there being a core of truth at each of these three pillars of the official version of the band story, because you do have a very strong friendship among the four of them. Yep. You do have whitewashing, yep. and even if you have elements of them that are, I guess, what we would consider less savory, there are also some wonderful qualities in there. And for the Lennon-McCartney partnership and the Lennon-McCartney songwriting partnership, you have numerous quotes from both John and Paul in the band's period where they will both admit, well, we work separately, but we also work together. We write in every percentage you can possibly imagine you know some songs are 100% John or 100% Paul and some are 50-50 and so you do have that admittance but certainly if you look at the basic structure of what they're saying they are very much selling the Lennon McCartney songwriting partnership yes but but to your point they were clear from the beginning that this is what it was it's not like there was some subterfuge that like we all believe that they you know that Paul was writing the music and John was writing the lyrics or you know they were always 50 50 you can find early interviews where they're pretty clear that we do it in all kinds of ways you know that there's no one methodology that we follow right absolutely and that's why it was kind of interesting to me when I when you run across sources in the early 70s or later on or even in the Beatles period and I can't remember who the writer is who made the flawed assumption, oh, well, Paul writes the melodies and John writes the lyrics, which was, right. again, how a lot of musical partnerships worked. And even after John and Paul had made it very clear, we both write both and we yeah. write in every proportion possible. But yeah. you get into the 70s and you have various writers who will say, we were under the impression that it was 50-50 far more of the time. But the reality is, now you do have some instances in the particularly in the earlier days, like 64 maybe, where John and Paul will refer to a song that we now would regard as more of a solo composition as you know, our composition. 
Yes. But that's also the mindset that they had in that time period. I think that's the big difference for me is the early days, they seem to regard their songs as theirs. You know, like there was this really shared ownership of the songs. Whereas at some point in 68, there seems to be this division and this need to own, you know, this was my song or mostly my song, but Paul helped, or this was mostly my song and John helped. But even from George, you see in those days, he speaks about them as our songs, you know, there is a, which I love in the early days. Yeah, I do too. And it does make a difference what you're first exposed to. So even as I'm critiquing these people who were still evidently perceiving in 1968, 1969, this idea of going line by line, 50-50 joint collaborations, when you're first exposed to a version of events it takes a considerable amount of evidence and willingness to even evolve from that perspective, I guess is what I'm saying. So if that's the first version of the Lennon-McCartney partnership you receive, then that's what will uh, be mo- be in the forefront of your mind. Right. But it's interesting because I've been very deeply into looking at the breakup. And John, in September 1969, refers to the myth of Lennon and McCartney. And something we explored was, what myth is he talking about? Because even in 69, John and Paul are still collaborating a lot. You know, whether whether or not they like to admit it, there's still an, about four or five songs where are, are very much joint songs. And even if you go to Abbey Road, um, you know, side two, which is the long medley where it's a combination of their songs, even if they were taking elements of one song and the other, it was still a joint production. Right. And I think certainly John's comments, not only in that interview, but obviously in later interviews as well, really helped lay a foundation for a flawed interpretation of the Lennon-McCartney songwriting partnership. And John will of course, admit in the Playboy interview in 1980 that he did lie about aspects of his songwriting partnership with Paul. And the way he phrases it is really interesting to me. He says something to the effect of, well, I was angry, so I felt like we did everything apart. And it's maybe not exactly that wording, but it's very, very close to it. And that wording is very interesting to me because it's almost as if John was saying, I was angry enough that I misremembered my own history or I was angry enough that I just lied and didn't care about it. And I think it's maybe a combination of the two of those. He was kind of negating or blocking how important it was, maybe out of self-protection from a personal level, but also protective from a reputational level as well. And the shocking thing to me is that John was very clear after Lennon remembers about how upset he was and how much emotions played into what he said at the time. And yet to this day, people don't read that into, I mean, some people do, but so many people miss how emotional John was at that time, you know, and how much that colors everything that he said. When I really started delving into Beatles historiography, severely disappointed at how few authors assessed Lennon Remembers at all. And just from what I knew of the interview and what I had studied of methodology, but again, you don't have to have an in-depth understanding of historical methodology 
to look at Lenin Remembers as an interview. It helps, but to look at Lenin Remembers as an interview and realize this is heavily agenda-driven. It is yep. one person's view of events. It yep. has little reinforcement from outside sources. It yep. is done by someone who is in a very emotional state of mind. And once you've got past, you have John's interview in, I think it's 73, where he denounces its importance publicly. Yep. You have passed the Playboy interview in 1980, John again admitting he lied in the interview. So when you have public acknowledgments like that, that this is not gospel truth, the reality that so many Beatles authors just took it and ran with it was very, very disappointing to me. There's really no other way to put it. Because again, there, there are some elements there that perhaps you do need a greater understanding of historical methodology, such as the issue of drugs or that there is a standard in historical methodology regarding strong emotion, that strong emotions generally diminish the credibility of a source rather than enhance it. I think a lot of people think it's true because he was emotional. According to historical methodology, that's flawed reasoning because what emotions do is they remove a level of our own individual attention, eyewitness attention, even our own objectivity as we are looking at a situation. Going back to the Fab Four narrative, the first element that you talk about was the fact that they were the best of friends. And um, I think when, when you dug into this in your book, you found a lot of evidence that that was true. You know, we've got George Martin saying that it was like a brotherhood. This is a quote from Martin in your book saying it was a brotherhood. It was like a fort really with four corners that was impregnable. Nobody got inside that fort once they were together, not Brian nor I. They had an empathy and a kind of mind reading business. And then you've got quotes from Shotton and others that observed them that said the, the same thing. Shotton says, there never was and probably never will be a group more self-contained or tightly knit than the Beatles were in those days. And, um, you know, and I think that's an important element. All of these elements are so important because in the breakup, it's kind of like John turned his back on so many of these things that people, you know, even people that I talk to today say things like, oh, well, those guys really hated each other, didn't they? And I'll be like, no, they really didn't. <laughs> they really loved each and, other. They just, you know, had a bad breakup for a while. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think there's a significant amount of evidence to indicate that they really were very close friends. And... Again, we have evidence from John and Paul and George, as well as Ringo, all to that effect. And from varying times, from times of varying levels of credibility, you have the very touching comment from Ringo in Anthology, or you have George, who's not you know, necessarily inclined to remember everything with rose-colored glasses, right. talking about how they kept each other sane, that they laughed a lot. I thought that was a really interesting quote from George because he talks about how your own memory can play tricks on you that in the breakup period, what he specifically mentions is that they got so, so tied up with the legal issues and the financial issues and the squabbles that it felt like it was miserable. But then when he looked back, when he had that perspective, he remembered, you know, we used to laugh all the time. I love that quote too, because when 
you actually dig in and you look at the Beatles, you look at the footage of them, they're always laughing. They're always having, and that's what I think that the public read that. We heard the joy and that wasn't not true. That wasn't a myth, you know? Frankly, they're not that good of actors. <laughs> <laughs> they're really, really bad actors in general, except Ringo. So you're absolutely right. Um, and that they did for a while have this collective identity. And, um, you know, Paul seems to have been the most independent at first, but they really were this collective. And I think in your book, you make the point that that the fact that they were incredibly close was not a myth, that that was true. The problem with that story was that it was just a little simplified and that we didn't have the whole story, which was that there were a lot of interpersonal dynamics that were not explored in the first version, in the Fab Four version of the story. Right. It's easier to package the friendship simply than it is to go into the nuances of it. Sometimes it makes me laugh because I... Uh, I'll read these books and think these authors portray them like they never even talk. You would think that these guys did not speak. And it's unfortunate because I think that their relationship to each other is a really important part of the story that often gets forgotten in talking about the events that happened in their life. Huh, that's a really good point. I consider the, I believe the phrase I used is the relationship between Lennon and McCartney, as well as the artistic partnership, which is obviously a part of that relationship, is the axis in Beatles history. And there are so many other obviously very important elements. And I don't say that to diminish George Ringo or George Martin or Brian Epstein or all of the other contributors, because I've had so many issues with authors who basically ignore all of these incredibly crucial figures most notably George Harrison and Ringo Starr, but also George Martin. And it's so frustrating for me when I see that. But that is my reading of a Beatles historiography. The, the partnership is obviously important, but the relationship impacts that partnership in inextricable ways. Yeah, it's interesting that the breakup of the Lennon and McCartney professional relationship is explained by the interpersonal, you know, that they both met other women and became, you know, more focused on their wives. And that becomes very complicated because it's like, but why does that matter when we're talking about their professional? That's a problem with Lennon and McCartney is that their professional relationship is very informed by their personal relationship. It's different than a traditional working relationship. I think that creative partnership requires a lot of personal investment. And so that makes talking about their working relationship, their professional relationship, incredibly difficult. It does. And I think there are a couple sources, and again, George Martin springs to mind, who identify that shift from John moving to Yoko and Paul moving to Linda as one of the reasons that the band breaks up. Yeah, and again, you have to acknowledge how important John and Paul were together. You know what I mean? Like, it, you have to take that into consideration as well. And uh, many authors don't. They will say that Paul was jealous, but this was a two-way relationship and partnership. I think we have various pieces of evidence from John discussing his jealousy as a part of his personality. We have jealous guy. And so to assume that John is only jealous regarding one individual in his life, I think is poor reasoning. Well, I've got some notes here from your book on this. You make the point that the early narrative reinforced 
the friendship, partnership, and respect for each other's work. And, um, you know, that really talked about the fact that they were complementary personalities, uh, whereas the later versions argued that their personalities were incompatible. Um, but especially in the early days, the jealousy issue was downplayed. And, you know, Paul especially would say, there isn't any jealousy, jealousy doesn't exist. But you point out that many insiders attest to the fact that, you know, including, and I'm reading from your book here saying that Cynthia Lennon, Yoko Ono, George Martin, Derek Taylor, Pete Shotton, Tony Bramwell, Hunter, Ray Connolly, May Pang, all of these people attest to the fact that Lennon had pervasive jealousy and was intensely insecure. Again, those are just some of the people who knew John and who attest he was a very jealous person and he was a very insecure person. And John says that. Yeah, but we've got, we've got, of, we've got recordings of John in 69 where he says this himself. And so I just find it curious to argue that something that was observed by so many people would only be directed at one individual and that would be Yoko Ono. I think that's a poor Again, conclusion to draw. If this is a fundamental part of John's personality, which so many people describe it as, then it's something that he dealt with his entire life. Right. John is insecure. He's also hugely charismatic. These are part of his character, and they're really critical to understanding the dynamic that's going on with the most important people in his life, which is obviously later Yoko, but at this point, it's McCartney and the I other Beatles. I think it's Pete Shotton who says, John envied three primary qualities of Paul. And number one was his natural musical ability. Mm -hmm. Number two was his basic stability. And that's interesting because stable is a word that John uses in Lennon Remembers. And yeah. Wenner actually attempts to goad John into saying straight, and John actually reiterates, no, stable. I, I'm pretty sure the word is stable. So I don't know. I think uh, George is pretty heavy. I mean, we're probably both the most cracked, you know. I think Paul's a bit more stable than, than George and I. Yeah. I don't know about straight, <laughs> stable. We have evidence from Pete Shotton that envy was an aspect of John's personality or reaction to Paul. Musical facility, self-discipline, and independence. Independence, yes, that's what it is. That was something that, again, we have reinforcement for in the authorized biography, where you have Cynthia saying to John, you need the other Beatles more than they need you. That's such a critically important statement because I think that would have been very scary to John. And I'd love a psychologist to actually, or a group of psychologists to talk about this so that we had additional uh, evidence of this. But Barry Miles, I had some conversations with him and he said, John was so afraid of being rejected. And, you know, it's similar to an idea of being abandoned. If John feels very, very dependent, that would be a very scary place to be. I think we're getting to the point in Beatles historiography where we really do need that expert analysis, someone to really sit down and delve into what emotions and issues were driving not only John, because the focus tends to fall primarily on John because the examples are so extreme and the behavior is so extreme, but also Paul 
and George and Ringo. But I almost wouldn't want one or two. I would like consensus. But certainly the idea of abandonment, a fear of abandonment is something that multiple people have hypothesized is an issue of John's. Well, you know what? And and I think we talked about this. I, I listened to Rosen talk about the, the diaries, John's diaries, and he made the point Something that was surprising to him was that how afraid John was that, that Sean or Yoko would leave him when he got mad at them. So there's it like this outburst followed by this extreme remorse and fear. And it just reminded me that this is this is somebody who was left as a child and there that for sure would manifest the rest of his life unless he really worked through it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's very unfortunate that Things such as therapy or medication were either unavailable to John or were not utilized properly. The Beatles biography has largely revolved around John. Like, I, I think John has been the center of the universe. You just look at the amount of time. So much of it is around John. Partly because, like you said, I mean, John's dramatic and John talked about it a lot, you know? But Paul's psychology would be really interesting to investigate as well. And unfortunately, we don't have the number of sources around Paul. And maybe we will someday, although, you know, a lot of them are gone, unfortunately. A lot of the material that would have been helpful is gone or unavailable. And Paul, by numerous indications, is uninterested in, I don't want to say bearing his soul. I think that's a little trite. But... I can't remember who it is. Maybe it's Dunoyer who says, you know, Paul is not nearly as interested in self-examination as other people are. And perhaps that's what's kept him sane. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think he maybe likes to use that for his creativity. He talks about that a lot, about how that's what his guitar is for. That's what music is for, you know. I remember seeing some quotes about that. That is a good point. So to quote you in, in your book, you say you're talking about John's insecurity mixed with his charisma. And then you talk about Paul's defining features being confidence and also Paul having a sizable ego. And you actually pull out a kind of a hilarious comment about Paul trying to be humble in the 60s that spectacularly fails because <laughs> it is not true at that time. Um, but although there is some additional evidence that Paul was insecure as well, but not at the same levels as John. But this is your quote. Elements such as Lennon's insecurity and McCartney's ego are important, not to summarily condemn the characters of either man, which falls outside of the historian's purpose, but to gain an essential understanding of why and how the Beatles story unfolded as it does. And I think that's really important. Again, if we're to understand that these characteristics, which we have sources for or reinforcement from, from so many different sources, were driving aspects or fundamental aspects of their personality, then we have to extrapolate from that, that they influenced their words and their decisions. And I would find it curious to remove them from the discussion. Right. That's really important that if John's got jealousy and possessiveness and insecurity issues, which he says again and again, and I love that about John, that he is aware and he's trying to deal with these issues. I love that about John. But then we have to look at it through the lens that sometimes when John is very reactive, that's what's driving him at that point. And we also know that Paul is more stable. So maybe sometimes, sometimes I think that people read into Paul's lack of reactivity as him being afraid or a hero worshiping John. And sometimes I think it's because Paul is more stable and understands John. 
Not always, but sometimes I think it is because of that, that he's like, I'm not going to react because I know, I know this is John. Is it Paul Dunoyer who in the conversations with McCartney where Paul is discussing his general approach to, uh, maybe it's not his general approach to conflicts, but Paul says something to the effect of following an edict of his anti-gin, least said, soonest mended, which is an aphorism that's not hers. Um, I've certainly read it before and heard it in other places as well. But if that is how Paul was raised, then again, so much of your basic personality, your behavioral patterns, characteristics, etc., according to psychology, tells us are set approximately by the age of seven to nine, which is well before Paul McCartney ever met John Lennon or John Lennon ever met Paul McCartney. So if there is a a certain way that Paul was raised to deal with conflict, then he will presumably fall into that pattern, whether he's in a conflict with John Lennon or who have you. So in your book, you talk about the fact that their relationship is far more complex and you use George Martin. Can you just talk to why George Martin is such a good source? A lot of reasons. Number one, he saw them for such an extended period of time. And that goes back a little bit to that discussion we had earlier, where you have people who meet the Beatles or are in their orbit for a month to six weeks and come out and somehow believe that they know maybe everything about them. And that's obviously flawed. But Martin knew them really from 1962 onwards and crucially observed them in the studio throughout the duration of their career. He participated in the creation of every album. He's a musician, so he is able to speak their language in a way that other observers are not. And he also is very consistent in his version of Beatles historiography, he's never really changed it. The major aspects of his version of the story remain the same. Now, Martin, as has been revealed, um, perhaps didn't want to dwell too much on some of the areas of his own life, um, particularly in regards to the end of his first marriage. But he also, because he very purposefully removes himself from the genius discussion, he also doesn't have as significant of an agenda in that discussion as John does or as Paul does, because Martin admittedly says, it wasn't me. I wasn't the genius. He repeatedly says it was John and Paul together who were the genius with the necessary additions of George and Ringo. If you are someone who regards George Martin as minimizing George Harrison in particular or Ringo's contributions, then you might find some issues there with his evaluation of George and Ringo. Although again, that was also pretty consistent. You might not agree with the assessment, but it's a consistent one and consistency is an indication of credibility. Yeah. And, and his perspective, I mean, I, I love George Martin. If there was a fifth Beatle for me, George Martin would be the fifth Beatle. And I find him, you know, his removal of the himself from the genius discussion, very interesting and self-deprecating in some ways, because I think he actually deserves a lot of credit. I, I do agree that their genius was something different, but my goodness, did he ever add a lot to their music and really elevate their music. So 
it was very gener generous of himself to remove himself from that discussion. Right, um, and he removes himself in a very diplomatic way because he does, again, assert it could have been somebody else who was there, but it wasn't somebody else. It was me. So he does diplomatically stake his claim, which is deserved. And again, one of the major flaws I see in the Let and Remembers and the Shout narratives is really the minimization of, well, everyone who's not John musically. And George Martin <laughs> suffers significantly in that regard. So I do believe he did have an agenda in that he wanted to receive due credit for his contributions. Yeah, well, John, this is also when John really creates the lone genius, you know, narrative. So Paul suffers as a result of that, too. Right. Everyone yeah. who's essentially not John does. To go back to what George Martin says. So he's a very credible source. And when he's talking about their relationship, which he had, as you said, like eight years to observe and knew them afterwards. Um, but he says that they had this really unique bond, uh, different than they shared with Harrison or Starr. And he makes the point that they had a rivalry, that they could be cruel and egged each other on because they saw each other as equals. But importantly, they always adored each other and what they brought to the table and they loved each other very much. And he's really consistent about this, you know, about the fact that they adored and loved each other no matter what. I find it very frustrating that some of his comments were available in the 1970s or in the early to mid-1980s to contradict a lot of the biographies that come out in that time frame, but his quotes were ignored. They were not included. And so many authors, so many authors, unfortunately, have that issue. And when you're dealing with a source like George Martin saying something like that, first of all, if you're going to use them as a source, then you need to explain why you're not including that material. If you're yeah. going to say that he's a he's a credible source and then not include the material that you don't like. Yeah. Well, that's my issue with Lewis and in the, the <laughs> initial meeting of John and Paul. I'd like to know why he didn't include all the other evidence that we have that tells a different story. But anyways, okay, so to get back to this, you actually provide all of the George Martin quotes that support how close they were. And I think that there is this dual nature that that George Martin continually suggests that they loved each other and they had this incredible bond, but there was an intense rivalry as well. But to actually reduce it to competition or rivalry is to not understand them. And it was not that, you know, that he says that there, it was something just very different and very unique to them. And then you make the point that no other relationship within the Beatles underwent such a dramatic revision after the dissolution of the band because the bitterness they directed towards each other during the breakup prompted a new appraisal. It just is shocking to me that people mistook John's bitterness as being the truth instead of high emotion. I find it puzzling as well. There are a lot of aspects of Beatles historiography when I first entered into it that I, I simply found puzzling as I looked at it from a historian's perspective. I remember the first time I described the basics of the London Remembers interview to the head of my history department and how it had gone completely unquestioned. And she was flummoxed as well. 
<laughs> well, it's because it's because I think we just had a bunch of journalists. You know, we had a bunch of rock and roll people that maybe were not held to the same. Well, obviously, we're not held to the same standards. Thank goodness we have some additional people like you that have come in. And, you know, I think Shank actually. I liked Shank. I liked him a great deal. I thought he had some good angles, some good perspectives. And I just liked his examination of the various aspects of a creative partnership and how that had really been ignored for a considerable amount of time because he doesn't just deal with John and Paul. He says, these are the basic elements of most creative partnerships. And so gives us sort of a variety of case studies. And I thought yes. that was, I thought that was excellent. A, a great yeah. way to approach it. Yeah. You know, and obviously this is what we're taking their relationship and partnership very seriously too in the, in the breakup series, because we think that that has been ignored, you know, that the, the underlying dynamics between the two of them weirdly has not been investigated enough. So I love Jenks perspective. I don't agree with everything he says. I, I have some different takes than him, but I love the fact that he took it seriously. And I think he had a lot of great insights. You know, it's, it's sad that in some of our early episodes, we actually had to read all of the quotes that we had from people that were close to them that talked about how incredibly close John and Paul were to convince people or lay the groundwork for the fact that this was a really important relationship to both of them. Because as you said, that post breakup, there are some authors that sort of position their, that denounce their relationship as a fraud, you know, based on stuff that John said when he was angry. Well, and a lot of those were very influential authors. Now, Goldman says that, and a lot of people do not like Goldman, but so does Coleman, so does Norman. Certainly that's the impression you also get in The Ballad of John and Yoko. So again, a lot of secondary authors, very, very prominent ones argued that. And for some people, they just get locked in onto that version and evidently find it difficult to impossible to look at new evidence. And you think that's what happened to all of these authors? Like, I, I don't get Goldman. Goldman should have known better at that point. But it was post-John's murder, so, you know, I, I don't know. Goldman is so curious in that, I mean, Goldman's view of them is perhaps the most extreme or among the most extreme in Beatles historiography. He says they never liked each other. They never trusted each other, and they almost never wrote together. Because... There is contemporaneous, just for anybody listening, that, you know, you can go back to our other episodes, but there are people around them who said that they had never seen two people be so close. You know, like that that's the kind of comments that exist about John and Paul. So for him to ignore that and come to this conclusion is so weird. I find it baffling um, when you get something like that. Now, of course, Goldman does tend to tilt towards the extreme, to put it mildly, in his interpretations. And... But you also have Coleman saying they never had much in common and they never liked each other. And so, although he reverses himself on that conveniently when he gets to the McCartney biography, but that issue of just flat out ignoring evidence that doesn't fit your predetermined thesis, there are so many Beatles authors who, who do that. And when you do that, regarding something as fundamental to the Beatles story as the Lennon-McCartney songwriting partnership and relationship, 
then since that's such a foundational aspect of their historiography, you're going to get a lot of other conclusions wrong. Well, that's exactly right. Is that's what I find breathtaking is that if you get this wrong, if you don't understand that this was a really deep, important relationship to both of them that impacted both of their lives tremendously and their, their professional and personal lives, that what are you getting right? Like, it's just like so much comes from that. I consider it the axis of, of their story. Everything else everything else revolves around it in their history and in their historiography. So if you get that basis wrong, then a lot of your conclusions will presumably be flawed as well. So Goldman does get some things right. And I know there are a lot of people who don't like the assertion that there is any worth in Goldman. There is some worth in Goldman. Admittedly, his primary flaw is taking the most extreme version, particularly the most negative extreme version, and ignoring contradictory evidence. But so many of his conclusions are flawed because he got that basic relationship wrong. And you see that same aspect with Coleman in the Lennon biography. So many of his conclusions are flawed because he got that wrong. Or Norman and Shout, or any number of biographies, the very foundation that they argue leads them to an errant hypothesis or errant conclusions. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and I think that that's why our breakup series has resonated with some people is because we don't accept the fact that the, that John was disinterested in the Beatles as of 1968, because we have the evidence from Davy's book that John was very dependent on the Beatles as of late 1967, so that the story doesn't make sense. And so we said, we need to look at this differently, and we're going to make the assumption that the axis of Lennon and McCartney is critical to the Beatles, so what happened there? It makes more sense when you actually consider their relationship as being fundamentally important to what happened and why the, the Beatles unraveled. It's been a To go back to the original Fab Four narrative is this idea of their image and this idea that they are these wonderful guys, but it's a much, uh, it's a really whitewashed image. You know, and a lot of these things are true, that they were funny, they were good guys, that they were sweet and talented. So all of those things were true. But you make it the point in your, your book that Hard Day's Night had a shockingly important and instrumental role in cementing the narrative. Absolutely. I think we have a number of Beatles who discuss how it basically labeled them for life. And one of the individuals who actually suffered the most from it was Ringo. And that his portrayal for the rest of his life was the lovable loser. 
or I'm yeah. trying to remember exactly what what words he used. And I think it's an 81, 82 interview. And he has never been able to completely shake that. Uh, George is also pigeonholed as the cheap grumpy beetle. <laughs> and he will get, again, on, on all of the stereotypes that we get in Hard Day's Night are doubled down on in help. Yes. So <laughs> we're, we're also incorporating help into this discussion as well. And Paul is essentially the cute one. His job is, and I, I think I remember Ringo's, Ringo's quote of this from like 1968 or 1969, where he's talking about the scripts the Beatles are still getting in that time period is um, John would be witty and Paul would be pretty yep, and George would be grumpy. And I can't, <laughs> and I can't remember what his, what his reduction of himself was, but that's, the stereotype that we we really get paul is cute and charming john is witty and sharp george is cheap and grumpy and ringo oh, is lovable and inferior yes yes he says john would be witty paul would be pretty i would be shy and george would be george yes um yeah but although he has said less less complimentary things too about that about really hating the image that he got or the stereotype that he got saddled with which was you know, the lovable loser or the lucky one. Uh, I think I think that the only one that actually benefited from this was John. John's character was was a good one. It was like he got to be smart and witty and and funny, you know? Well, I'm trying to remember who it is, a contemporary of John's, and I can't remember who it is, who said that that then put pressure on John. And maybe it was Silla Black. Um because then he always felt that he had to be witty and he always right. had to be sharp. And I cannot remember who it was. Maybe it was Scylla. I maybe, but yeah, right. it's, it's a more complimentary version, certainly than Ringo, the lovable loser. And again, George's grumpiness and cheapness. <laughs> right. But Paul's is important too, because I think, I mean, he, we know he did not, he has expressed later that he hated the, the idea of the cute one. You know, in the 80s, he talks about that. He's like, I don't think I'm cute. I think he resented that you were the quote unquote cute beetle, that you were the, the, the hottest guy. Like, it was because I remember reading that John wouldn't even wear his glasses on stage. He was concerned about how he looked. I mean, as all performers are, you want to, you know, you, you certainly want to be attractive, put your best foot forward. But you had this branding of being the cute beetle which I imagine you didn't like because in a way being cute means, oh, I'm not a serious musician. And maybe right. John resented it, right? It was there. Yeah, a I, I hated that. I mean, that's what happens. It's just, he's the cute one. I go, no, I'm yeah. not. No, don't call me that. I hate that, you know. But yeah. once it's said, it kind of sticks. Um, but I just can't help being cute, Howard. <laughs> the label, the pretty one or the cute one, undermined his credibility as an artist you know particularly when you're dealing with i think there's a distinction made between cute and pretty neither of them are necessarily complimentary certainly uh neither of them give him gravitas 
I guess would be a better way to say it. But when you describe a grown man as cute, it reinforces that the most important thing about him is his appearance. And Paul was a pinup. We have more than enough evidence to indicate that. I think there's a great story from Oprah in one of the interviews she did with Paul, where she, she talked about how she had a poster of Paul on her wall as a girl growing up. So he absolutely was a pinup, but certainly that if that's his defining characteristic, then it's, it's not his intelligence. It's not his musical ability. It's not even his charm, which is the second primary quality that he is given in in the movies it's for something that most people would regard as shallow but the word pretty which has also been attached to paul primarily by authors primarily by male authors is a different word entirely because when we get to the word pretty then certainly from everything i have studied that is an insult for a man to use that to describe another man. In a way that diminishes. It is. It is a diminutive. It is using heavily feminized language in order to ascribe a feminine trait to a man and therefore reduce him. So it implies the inferiority of females in the very premise of it. And it also reduces the man. And this was something I was just jogged in my memory by on my blog someone mentioned that they had just recently ordered Nicholas Schaffner and the Beatles forever and that is a book that I have very mixed feelings about there are some aspects of it that I enjoy greatly but I do recall reading it and I think he uses the word pretty to describe Paul and I don't think I'm exaggerating at least about 15 times yeah, and perhaps that's yeah, an element yeah. that male authors are not, or male readers are not going to pick up on. But there has been academic exploration of the issue of feminized language and the connotations of it and what it means when it's used to describe men. And there is implicit criticism there, it is a reduction. A whole conversation about. The, the feminization of Paul as a ways to reduce him, to undermine him, uh, to diminish him. Uh, and, and as you said, that men may not recognize it overtly, but I think subconsciously it plays a role in their view of him. You know, you always see this as Paul being secondary or John being the alpha, you know, described in those terms. And I don't necessarily see Paul's behavior that way, but I think that it has been reinforced through a lot of the language that has been used to talk about Paul. Going back to the original issue that Paul certainly took issue with his depiction as the cute one. And because it does, I I think it's Ray Connolly who discusses how he has problem with, had a problem with the stage show, um, Lennon Naked, I think it was, that basically reduces John to one element, and that is his anger. And it Mm. stripped him of every other aspect of his personality. And pushing the caricature of Paul as the cute one really reduces or strips away the other elements of his personality. 
and of his creativity. And it's just, it is. It's his intelligence and creativity. And but the fact that Paul is so sharp and smart is something, an aspect of Paul's personality that's really been buried. Um, but certainly having the moniker cute one is one way to diminish that as well. It takes attention away from it anyways. Paul mm -hmm. actively looking to push away from that caricature, all of them did to an extent, try to break out of those stereotypes, but actively trying to push out of it, particularly by the time we get to Maureen Cleave. By 1966, you know, they were so famous. They and and they really, really wanted to break out of these personas. The way that they were trying to do that was through these series of profiles on them, which would help differentiate them and and explain their unique personalities. And so they brought in Maureen Cleave to do these profiles. And she was really interesting. She was a good observer. I think her profiles are excellent. Great sentences and descriptions of all of them, characteristics that they demonstrate, parts of their personalities, how they think, how they live. I mean, okay, so just to go over them very quickly, I've got some notes from your book. You say that Ringo, you know, <laughs> Ringo again got shafted um, <laughs> in that <laughs> she's probably the least complimentary of him in that just she says that he's the least brilliant and the most ordinary, but she does actually realize that he is the most sensible and mature and least complicated. And I think the idea of maturity is an interesting idea that she um, introduced. And then she makes the point that he's got a, a happy family life and right. um, that at first she, and she makes the point that he struggled at first to be, included with a group, but now there's this feeling of total unity. I think that's the interview where we get the, it took three years for him to really feel like he was part of the group quote. That's interesting. And that's shocking. That's taking a little bit away from this indivisible, like four best friends story. And he's saying it's true now, but it wasn't always, you know, so it shed some light on that. He joins the group and really almost instantaneously, they become famous in England and then world famous. So oh really, really none of them, none of them got the preparation that you would presumably get today for becoming famous. But Ringo gets even less time to integrate with the other three as a unit and get to know them really well before all of a sudden he's world famous. So that's a, right. that's another layer there.
Okay, so then she talks to George, and she says that he's the least well-known Beatle. She describes him as strong-willed, uncompromising, delightful, and original. She highlights the fact that he is frustrated with fame. Um, she flags his issues, his skills as a songwriter, but she, you make the point that um, she doesn't lavishly praise his skills. She highlights the fact that he says he wishes he could write as fine songs as Lennon and McCartney do. And she reinforces the perception of Harrison as the Beatles most interested in business. A number of people comment on that. So there's probably something to that. Yes, I think we have enough sources in the official narrative discussing that George was the Beatle most interested in business and finance. And in fact, it might even be in Paul's Paul's Cleave interview where he says, if you want to know how much money I have, ask George. <laughs> That's true. I think I think you're right. Like this is probably natural to George, but also George was making less money than John and Paul. So That's something you know, he would have been very aware of keeping yes. track of everyone's finances. Exactly, exactly. And then you flag this issue, and it's really important. So I just want to um, quote what you've got in your book here. All of the Beatles, John, George, and Paul are all outspoken in different ways. And George Harrison had the blunt opinion about the Vietnam War. He says, it's wrong. Anything to do with war is wrong. So that's, that's his sort of controversial remark. Absolutely. George saying something to the effect of I'm against the war in Vietnam is something that will lose him fans in the United States. Now, I don't think at this point that they know that it's going to be serial serialized or released in the United States, but it's, it is a controversial statement in that time period. And George makes it anyway. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting that she pegs him as strong-willed, uncompromising, delightful and original, you know, those are, you know, that gives him more complexity than we got from the quiet one or <laughs> the grumpy one, or, you know, like there, she's introducing new aspects to George. So Del, one of the aspects I remember of her in her discussion of George was that depending on his mood, he was interested and invested and again, delightful to talk to but if he simply wasn't in the mood for that interaction, then he could shut you down. Your day breaks, your mind aches. You find that all her words of kindness linger on when she no longer needs you. She wakes up, she makes up, she takes her time and doesn't feel she has to hurry. She no longer needs you And in her eyes you see nothing No sign of love behind the tears Cried for no one A love that should have lasted years Okay, so then in terms of Paul, I think what's interesting is, and, and I'm going to quote your book here, she says, uh, McCartney was a puzzle. She's sort of the first one that flags this issue, that there's more to Paul than meets the eye. She says, McCartney, in contrast, was a puzzle that neither his sweet looks nor his music provided a true picture of the man's character. You say what's interesting is her portrayal of his personality extended beyond the rote description of merely charming that dominated the public perception. According to Cleve, McCartney displayed a shriveling wit, a critical intelligence, and an enormous talent. 
Cleve noted his independence. She acknowledged his geographical separation from the other Beatles as the only London-based member. And she says he is half Beatle and half not. And I, when I read that, I thought that was really fascinating because people always say that Paul was Mr. Beatle and most invested in Beatle. Whereas again, this offers a different perspective that yeah, he loves being a Beatle, but he also has a different side to him, you know, and he was the least willing to follow the gang and the mo most willing to be independent. In anthology, I think that geographic separation with Paul being in London and the others out in the suburbs perhaps hasn't received the attention that it should because there's a very powerful quote from Derek Taylor in anthology, I believe, where he says the equivalent of, when Paul stayed in London and the others went to the suburbs, that it was the equivalent of these four soldiers coming home from war where they had been this unit together and three of them live in Queens and one of them lives in Manhattan. He emphasized that that geographic situation, that geographic situation was a significant issue in separating Paul from the other three. Again, this is so important because John also flags the issue that when Paul left India and didn't stay with them, that this was an issue. It had greater significance, as did doing his own thing and living in London. And there is an interview from Paul from 1966 where he sounds pretty defensive. He was like, well, we discussed it and we decided that it wasn't a big deal if I lived in London. You know, it's it's actually very funny because this is an issue they've taken seriously. Contradicted by Pete Shotton, who says John never would have imagined living more than 10 minutes away from the other Beatles. And so right. for John, this was an issue that Paul chose to live that far away from him and George and Ringo. I think that's a huge issue and one that needs to be explored further. And again, because I think that Paul and John's relationship isn't explored enough that they don't understand that that, that maybe the insecurity that that would have created in John that Paul's doing his own thing or the sense of independence that would have given Paul to have had a separate group of friends certainly more recent books have understood that the proximity to the scene gave Paul new influences or different different influences but I also think that it, it, what hasn't been talked about is the emotional element to Paul maybe seeming less committed or, you know, willing to do his own thing. Well, we have John admitting that it's partly out of envy of Paul's experiences in London, that Paul is single, that Paul is doing all of these artistic things while he's in the stockbroker belt, that john had a negative perception or said some negative things regarding sergeant pepper because paul was having evidently a wonderful time through that time period and john was not so we know that according to john he felt at least a certain measure of envy over what paul was experiencing again and that being a fundamental aspect of john's personality yep Yep, this competitiveness. You make the point that McCartney peppered the interview with art and literature references, citing his fascination with avant-garde figures like Stockhausen and Luciano Berrio and his involvement in the avant-garde. And 
this is important because this predates John and Yoko, you know, so this actually gives Paul support, his argument, which I've often seen dismissed, you know, well, Paul's just trying to talk up his involvement in the avant-garde, but we've got this contemporaneous 1966 interview where he is talking about these issues that actually gives him support for the fact that he was interested in these things at this time. I always find it interesting that later John ends up married to an avant-garde artist. Not that that was the main element that attracted him to Yoko, but I think that if Paul has been exploring the avant-garde in 1966, that that would have made it more on John's radar, you know, so that when he meets an avant-garde artist, it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's, at this point, ignoring Paul McCartney's interest in the avant-garde and that it predated John Lennon's is either done out of sheer ignorance, which is inexcusable, or it's done deliberately, which is even more inexcusable. Because we have contemporary evidence from the 1960s. We have interviews with Paul. We have interviews with Maureen Cleave. We have other interviews with Paul. We have the London Times interview. We have discussion of the tape loops. We have a number of primary sources that were contemporaneous. And we also have primary sources that are retrospective. We have Barry Miles and we have John Dunbar any number of people who were or could have been interviewed who will attest to Paul's interest in the avant-garde. And so at this point, if you're going to ignore that element of Paul's artistry, it's inexcusable. There's really no other way to put it. It's so hard to, you know, I may do an interview with a, a musician and he he wants to talk about the dynamics in, in the studio. And it's just these things are build on the myth he was like yeah well you know john was the experimental one and paul never did anything wasn't interested in that and i was like well he was but i'm not even going to go into that it's just like unbelievable how deeply entrenched these ideas are that it's it's just hard to throw at this point although i don't think that that means we shouldn't continue and i agree with you that it's it's part of paul's artistry i think it's part of his character to be curious and to explore things and to not acknowledge that cheats Paul out of part of his artistry. Paul has referenced how he prefers to gently incorporate the elements of the avant-garde into some of his more mainstream work. And so he doesn't do it at the extremity of certainly John and Yoko. Now, he does in certain areas, but perhaps not necessarily in his Beatles work. Exactly. Oh, another element to her interview with McCartney was that he was also outspoken in terms of his particular topic of interest was that he condemned um, the U.S. and its history of racial discrimination with a very blatant comment, which should have been equally provocative to John or George's. But, you know, I'd like you to discuss after we talk about John, just how that ended up getting lost in the drama of John's statement. He makes a a very forceful statement. And it's it's interesting to hear him flat out say that what's probably his biggest market or the Beatles biggest market, America is a lousy country because of its history of racial discrimination. Yeah. He's critical of the U.S. at that time, you know, and supportive of the U.K. and some of their institutions like the BBC. 
that's very brave. And I, I think I, I really enjoy Paul at this period in his interviews because he seems to be unafraid to express his point of view, you know, unafraid of the consequences. So he seems to be quite honest. And then we go into John, and you make the point that this is probably his most famous profile outside of uh, After Lennon Remembers. Her opinion of John is as imperious, unpredictable, indolent, disorganized, childish, vague, charming, and quick-witted. Uh, she emphasizes his laziness and intellectual restlessness. And whereas Harrison criticized the Vietnam War and the British tax system and McCartney condemned America's racial discrimination, um, she talks about the fact that John was reading about religion at that time. And that's what he comments on, the Christianity's decline across post-war Europe. And so this is where you get the bigger than Jesus statement from John. And so this is this is where the the bigger than Jesus statement comes from this interview, which, as you say, really didn't make much of a dent in the UK market. People either agreed or ignored his comments there. And then it was introduced into the United States. And I've seen varying reasonings for that. You have the most common interpretation just seems to be that the editor of Datebook wanted to grab attention and therefore published John's comments. But there is also a disagreement about his motivation. Some people argue that he did it to provoke a discussion about race because of Paul's comments on America's racial system. Right, and, and he that, maybe thought it was going to be bigger, right? The right, bigger, that's the more right. Paul, Paul on the cover of the magazine. Yeah, it's interesting because they all had the the point of doing this is to allow them to be seen as more individuals, to give them a profile, to differentiate them, you know, to to bring them to life and and break out of this original image that they have these very flat, simple images that we have of the Beatles and allow them some nuance. And the problem was is that John's comment was so controversial and got so much attention that it subverted the original intent of allowing them all to have different personalities and shine and all the attention went to him. The issue is if you look at really almost any standard Beatles biography, what you'll get is maybe a sentence or two about Cleve portraying or writing portraits of all four Beatles and then maybe a sentence about Ringo's portrayal, a sentence about George's, and a sentence or two about Paul's. And what I remember is that neither of the mentions, or none of the mentions ever discussed George's words on the Vietnam War. I've never heard And, and never. Paul's, maybe every once in a while, will say something about him talking about racial injustice, but I, I'm honestly drawing a blank on what specific biographies or especially the older biographies, do that. I, I can't think of any. I think the Beatles 66 does, because, again, this is an interview yeah. that is published in 66. But, of course, the vast majority of the attention falls on John's interview because the aftermath and the reaction to John's interview is 
something that has to receive considerable coverage next in for, from the author's perspective. They have to set up, well, the record burnings and the KKK and the protests against the Beatles in the United States. And so they cover a lot of John's interview, but you might not get any quotations or coverage of the other three interviews. Yeah. I mean, even Beatles 66, which I was very disappointed that I actually thought, okay, this is, this is, you know, one of the most important things you can talk about in 66, because it really brings to life the differences and where the Beatles are at at this time. And even he spent so much time on the John interview and he doesn't dig into, like there are breadcrumbs in all of these that provide really interesting fodder for discussion. Like for example, Paul living outside of the city. He doesn't talk about that. He doesn't talk about George, you know, George being opinionated or, you know, any of the interesting things that they bring up in George's um, interview or his discussion about the Vietnam War or, um, you know, and of course, nobody discusses Ringo, except for, like you said, a, a sentence. But, but, you know, and I think just to quote you here, that one of the impacts of this, of all of the attention going on to the John interview, is that it reinforces this image of John as being a blunt, blunt man of honesty, uh, uninterested in currying favor with the mainstream press. And it magnifies Lennon's reputation as um, a man that is unafraid to make controversial statements while ignoring that both McCartney and Harrison also provided similarly unspoken, if overlooked, views in their conversation with Cleve. What John, or excuse me, what Paul said and what George said would have been controversial, absolutely, in that time period trying to rebuke the United States on its record of racism in 1966 is something that would not be well received by large sections of the country and by large sections of the press. And the reality is that because everyone got so swept up in John's comments that that got overlooked and that's an extreme today the issue obviously of america's dealing with race is extremely provocative doing so in 1966 this is the year after the assassination of malcolm x this is three years before the assassination of martin luther king and robert f kennedy is this is a i don't want to say it's an inflammatory statement but it is a serious, contradictory one. This will get people upset. There's really no other way to put it. And it's just really been overlooked. Paul's statement and being outspoken at that time, I think one other thing that has gotten lost, never mentioned in Beatles 66, was the fact that Paul really stepped up in the tour and was very protective of John after this too. Paul, both in his comment with Cleve and also his actions in, in protecting John after that, was really showing a leadership role that he doesn't get credit for. I received a request from an author recently to evaluate a book, and I won't reveal the author or the book, but I did refuse to review the book. And... 
there are various reasons for that. The primary reason was I don't have time. But another issue was as I read the book, there were various statements that the author made that I disagreed with. And one of the statements that the author made was an assertion that Paul was not political. And I think we have evidence to indicate that that statement is incorrect. And this interview would be one of the pieces of evidence to contradict that, as well as the original version of Get Back. We have Paul sending that letter to Margaret Thatcher yep. regarding her treatment of the nurses. Yep. And you have, of course, Give Ireland Back to the Irish and other various issues. So, again, it's so easy to fall into a stereotyped perspective, I guess you could say. But when the evidence is there to flat out ignore it is incredible to me. Yeah, it's just irresponsible. You, you have to take it into account. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that you weren't endorsing it if that was the case. The primary reason was that I simply didn't have the time. I really don't. But yeah. the, uh, the other element was the errors I saw and regarded in, in the writing and in the evaluation. Well, that's the thing is, I'm just still surprised at how many weird and old school assumptions about Paul are made. Like, don't we know better by now? But it's, it just seems these stories seem to repeat. I think a part of it just simply has to be laziness, (laughs) for lack of a better term. Uh, And the material that is so easily accessible and available it's it's difficult, frankly, more difficult to find Maureen Cleve's Paul interview than it is to pluck the first version of Coleman off the shelf. Yeah. And yeah. Access, access and ease is so significant to to what we learn and what we know. This was, you know, Cleve was obviously an attempt to, uh, to, to try and shed some of the stereotypes. And unfortunately, that didn't work because it got overshadowed by John's interview. And then they seem to approach it again in 1967. You know, Hunter Davies approaches, I guess, Paul with this idea of doing a biography. And I think you make the point that potentially they did it because this would make things easier for them if they didn't always have to be answering questions to the press, if they had more information out there. Right. And you make the point that like all official histories, it's impacted by the conflict between impartiality and access. I was personally reluctant to pick up the authorized biography because I am not very fond of authorized histories. And mm-hmm. the reason for that is I always feel that a certain amount of wool is being pulled over my eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the issue is just basically measuring how much wool is being pulled over your eyes. And so when I finally did read the authorized biography, I was pleasantly surprised. And I have seen Davies defend it in arguing that while all of the Beatles read it and all of the Beatles had to approve it, that the amount of material that they requested he edit out was minimal. And I'd love to look at Davies' notes, frankly. I'd love to... I'd love to see what notes he had. My understanding is that Philip Norman had access to those notes for the first edition of Shout and other authors, I believe, have also had access to Davies's notes. 
again, I'd, I'd love to take a peek at them and see what they say. Oh my God. Yes. I have found it absolutely invaluable, absolutely invaluable. And I'm going to quote you here because you say it better. You said that despite the flaws, Hunter Davies, the Beatles, the authorized biography is an invaluable source. The timing is crucial. It was at the height of the Beatles mystique Sgt. Pepper album when the Lennon-McCartney partnership was enjoying a creative peak. It's crucial importance that the book was written prior to the entrance of Yoko Ono, Alan Klein, Linda Eastman. And um, it's the most in-depth eyewitness account of the group while it was still functioning. And so that's why I personally love it is we've got quotes before the spin of the breakup. And to your point that Hunter says that there was not that much editing. They had the ability to edit, but they didn't request that much. And of course, it's in Hunter's interests to say that. I, I believe him, but obviously it makes the book, it gives the book greater authenticity if he argues that not much was excised because of the Beatles requesting those edits. Interestingly, Barry Miles makes the same point about Paul that he had the final edit, but didn't actually request that much to be changed, mm -hmm. except for he asked for a lot of the references to Jane to be removed because Linda was sick and he didn't want it to be the Jane and Linda show. And he wanted everything about Maggie McGivern removed. So that just shows a trend that they are actually more hands-off than you would think. Okay, so what this book conveys is aligned with what we saw started with Cleve. He says that Harrison was the most changed in that his new devotion to Hare Krishna was a new element. And Davies described him as obsessive over Hare Krishna, uh, which actually Chris O'Dell in our interview said the same thing too. She said, yeah, it was interesting, but he was obsessive about it. He's a little bit dismissive of the band at this point, um, you know, just as being a job. And that again, like Cleve, there's a sort of a downplaying of Harrison's growth as a songwriter. Hunter says he looked at John and Paul as, as the composers and writers. He feels he has no need to bother when they are so good. And I'm just wondering, like both in Cleve and Hunter reflect this. And I'm wondering if maybe this was George himself. This may have been the kind of thing that he said because he didn't fully own his position as a songwriter at the time. I do remember being surprised at that quote. And I think the general timeline is that Davies spends part of 66 with the Beatles friends and family. So he actually spends more time with them first, then he interacts with the Beatles themselves. And then yeah. the book is published in 68. So yeah. Yeah. it's interesting to me that 68, of course, is when we get the White Album, and that's when a lot of critics start to see George's work approaching the level of John and Paul's. And at the same time that that happens, you have the authorized biography come out where George is claiming that he's not on that level. 
Yeah, that's a great point because you look at his contributions to Sergeant Pepper, he's got Within You, Without You. He's only got one song on Magical Mystery Tour. So in terms of, again, I don't know what he was writing in the background, but that wasn't the height of his songwriting. It was almost a bit of a pause where I think he was getting more into Indian music at that time. That's my understanding as well, that George was delving very deeply into Indian music. Okay, and in terms of Star, there we see a similarity to Cleve as well. He said, you you say that his characterization changed the least. He's open and friendly, the sweetest of them all. He is not self-centered, but that there is a separation between Lennon and McCartney on one tier and Star on another. Again, this is the way that Hunter is representing them. Davies makes some interesting comments about that both then and later on, and I think the 1982 edition of the authorized biography, where he explicitly says that in a lot of ways, John found it easiest to get along with Ringo because he didn't see Ringo as a threat or an equal. I think that's really important. We've got that similar idea from Shotton, who says that John sometimes had an issue with Paul because he saw him as the only person who was his equal. So there was always the element of competition there. Right. That isn't there, according to Shotton, initially, certainly for a while with George, and was really never there with Ringo. So there was a level of comfort that John could have with with George for a while and also with Ringo because he didn't see them as threats to his supremacy. Right. And there is a lot of support that John never saw George as an equal. He might have felt like George was a threat at some point, you know, late 60s, 70s. You know, certainly according to people like Connolly, John always considered Paul really is the only other person that was on his level. Connolly says that, Shotton says that, John himself says that in several interviews. Yeah, I guess the thing that the biography does is it downplays the band's drug use and sexual exploits. And I think I read a, a quote from Hunter where he talks about the fact that he did, he knew about some of Paul's cheating on Jane, but just decided it would be embarrassing, so he dropped it. He did not mention that. You make the point that Davies' description of Epstein's um, depression and struggles during his final months were remarkably honest. Again, for an authorized biography, Davies puts a lot of emotion into that section when you're dealing with, with the death of Brian and talking about how how much Brian Epstein was struggling in the last few months of his life. Right. Now, he did omit the fact that Brian was gay. And I think that was done at the request of Brian's mother, I believe. Right. Although I think that Brian was willing to admit that, wasn't he, before he died? I think so. That's ringing a bell. Brian was willing to admit it, but after his death, his mother requested that that be taken out, or maybe even before his death. I can't remember the specifics. Yeah, me neither. But but it, it's interesting. His description is, is consistent with, there's a letter that Paul wrote to Brian that was very similar too. You know, he talks about Brian's issues being imagined and not to worry about these things so much. So you know, what What uh, Hunter was describing is echoed by this letter that was apparently written from Paul to Brian. I wish, I find Brian so confusing that the takes on him are so different that I can never get a clear picture of Brian. I think so too. And that's why I think I, I mentioned that little bit about 
the reactions to Brian and his primarily whether he was even a good manager is such a controversial issue. And you have various people who argue he was a good manager if he was a little naive and people who argue he was incredibly stupid at setting up his contracts, um, particularly after the Beatles were famous. And that's an area that, again, I wish I had a better business and legal background because that would really help in parsing out, okay, which argument is more valid? So I think you make the point in your book that the unity and insularity among all four Beatles was one of the major themes in the book. And I think, again, we, we're seeing a lot of consistency. So this idea that they were the four best friends, until the until things started falling apart in 68, this is very consistent among everybody who observed them. There was certainly a closeness. Absolutely. I really don't think there's an argument now as to whether that closeness actually existed. I think you can maybe debate the level of it, but not again, whether it was actually there, because we have so many sources who attest to it. Right. And, you know, and, and Davies is interesting because he makes the point that John in particular, like he, he particularly emphasized Lennon's dependence on his bandmates. And this is the quote that you mentioned before, that John most of all can't be without the other three for very long. This is a quote. And then Lennon agreed and said, we do need each other a lot. And then Lennon's wife, Cynthia, concurred, but warned, they seem to need you less than you need them. And that is such an important quote. John approved it, so he saw it. This isn't something that was taken out of context. This is a true quote that he saw in the book and was like, okay, that can go in. That's really one of the most interesting aspects of the authorized biography for me is the reality that the Beatles read it. Now, I don't think we know what degree of attention they read it with. But they did read it in order to request edits be made. So the reality that essentially someone is holding a window or a mirror up to their lives, that's that's an element that I find so interesting both then and now. And I think the authorized biography absolutely played a role in what came after. Absolutely. I mean, that's why it's so important for us to talk about this, because I think that what was in here impacted John. I mean, you know, because you see John reacting to something in 68. It could be that he was responding honestly. And then when he saw it played back to him or reflected back to him, it might have scared him. Certainly one of the aspects that keeps repeated, getting repeated again and again and again in the authorized biography is John's obsession with being in the dominant position and being number one. And Pete Shotton talks about it and John talks about it. And it really is described as a fundamental driving force of his personality. And at the same time, you have Davies arguing that following Brian's death, in some ways, not always, but in some ways, Paul has now become the leader of the band, which is a switch from previous interpretations of the band. Really, all the evidence in 62, 63, 64, is talking about how the band is a democracy, but John is the leader. And now you have a switch where Davies is saying, but in some ways now Paul is the leader. And I think that's a really interesting issue to deal with. Well, and and I would debate even that, you know, I think John was the dominant force, 
you know, there was a lot of dominance from Paul in the studio from day one, but just the fact that Hunter called this out in this book would have probably been provocative and, and uncomfortable for John to see that written. What, again, plays a role here is the issue of Alan Klein. And I don't think we have an eyewitness account of someone watching Alan Klein read the authorized biography from cover to cover. I don't think that exists. What we do have is we have people who knew Klein well and worked with him talking about how he obsessed over the Beatles for over a year before he got them, how he read everything he could get on them, which presumably would include the authorized biography. And he examined their interviews for angles on how he could get his foot in the door. And so if you look at it from that angle, then Klein read the authorized biography, presumably, which talks about John's obsession with being viewed as being the top dog or however you want to phrase it, and then use that as part of his pitch to John when he finally did get his foot on the door. So in that, in that way, the authorized biography had a direct impact on the breakup. What I found interesting reading it is that there was this notion that this was part of John's character. He says, I was aggressive because I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be the leader. I wanted everyone to do what I told them to do to let me be the boss. Like there's an element of let me, which I kind of see repeated in 69. Like he's really angry. Like, why won't you let me be the boss? And, you know, in some ways, I think Paul let John be the boss in earlier times and he stops doing that. But what one of the things that I found interesting in reading it is that in 67, you know, Shotton and other Vaughn talk about the fact that that used to be the way he was, but he wasn't like that anymore, presumably because of the impact of LSD or something's impacting him so that he's not as concerned about it at that time. And I think that that's a really interesting insight, too, is that for some reason, John is happier. There maybe is more equality in the band. And you look at this time, like this is when John suggests they all move to Greece and live together, which reflects that this may have been a time, for all of Hunter's comments, this may have been a time of real equality between him and Paul where he's okay with letting Paul be the leader on some activities. He's still bringing amazing songs to the table at this time. And I think that there's still an invest, a joint investment in Lennon and McCartney because later John talks about Sergeant Pepper being a peak. And so I just wonder if John is willing to cede some of the leadership when he feels like they're both equally invested. You have accounts from John where he's talking about how he's miserable during the Pepper period, but you also have evidence to indicate that he wasn't. The same as when you're dealing with the last five years of his life. So I think when it comes down to it, what you're really dealing with is an issue of proportion. In that, was John miserable... 20% of the time, 30% of the time, was he happy, you know, 60 to 70% of the time? And that's what makes this period so complex, as well as the last few years of John's life, because you have evidence for both. 
And yes. when, when you get into those areas where you're trying to divvy up proportion, <laughs> especially about what's going on in someone's head in some instances, you know, in some cases, that's simply impossible to quantify. That's one thing we do know at this time. And I actually asked Barry Miles that too, because he said, well, the thing is, is that Paul and John were spending a lot of time together and they were best friends, but John was unhappy a lot of the time when he wasn't there. And I guess one of the things we do know is this was a very good time for Paul. You know, even if John was partly happy, there may have been this jealousy or this comparison to Paul's life, which was really, you know, Paul says that 67 was one of his best years ever. You mentioned this in your book that Time Magazine waxed poetic about this period, that that Paul was at the height of his powers, creatively, physically, financially, this young genius getting richer and more famous, the fantasy of women, you know, that this is Paul's existence. So even if John is feeling happy some of the time and they are spending time, he's not quite in that position. So when I was at the Sergeant Pepper conference, Anthony DeCurtis was one of the speakers and he talked about an interview he had done with Paul. And it was funny because he said he didn't want to come off as Chris Farley <laughs> in the interview, <laughs> but he basically said, you know, what was it like in the summer of 1967 to be Paul McCartney in London? You're about to drop this amazing album and all these sort of things. And Paul's response was basically, Anthony, it was awesome. It was great. <laughs> you know, every, every wonderful adjective that you could possibly imagine is how Paul described it genuinely. And I just think that's, you know, another piece of evidence to indicate that Paul was evidently very happy in this time period. And it really doesn't matter And John would have seen that. We at least have John's comments from, or, or Cynthia's comment along those lines. We can date that to late 67. And, you know, they go to India and we have pictures of John looking quite happy at the beginning of India. And then we know that when John came back, he was very depressed and unhappy for a while. So this at least gives us a snapshot of where they were in 66, 67 that I find invaluable and in and actually undermines a lot of the post-narrative spin, or at least provides some, some important information that should be considered. So I, I, I think this book is so important. I do too. I really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed also Davies's different editions over time, because I looked through all of those. I think his 1982 edition didn't receive enough attention, because he does push back against the Lennon remembers and the shout versions of history in the forward and afterward of that book. And he has continued to do so diplomatically and carefully really over the decades. Yeah. I mean, it, it's wonderful. And he was there and he observes a lot, which I appreciate. Like I, I appreciate the observation rather than trying to tell us too, too much 
about what's going on. He tells us actually, he gives us information about Paul and Jane that we really don't have elsewhere. His observations of them as a couple, he's, which I appreciate, you know, because those are practically non-existent anywhere else as well. I do too. That's really the main source that you're going to get regarding Paul and Jane's relationship because it's the most comprehensive. And Davies obviously was a fan of Paul and Jane and generally portrays their relationship very positively. So I, I do think given Davies' comments, particularly in the 1982 edition of the authorized biography, he was less than wowed by Linda initially, although he appears to have warmed up to her over time. But he was one of those individuals, certainly in my reading, who regarded Jane, at least for a while, as a better partner for Paul. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he says that when they came to to Portugal, that he just saw Linda as sort of a temporary thing, which for Linda, um, what a terrible position for her to be in is to come and replace Jane immediately. Because clearly... Hunter was a friend of Paul and Jane's too, you know, and he saw it must have been a lovely couple because that's almost unanimously viewed, except for Marianne Faithful. They're viewed externally, at least, as being a really lovely couple. Paul and Jane really is the only couple Paul's had where they really got universally complimentary coverage. And I really don't recall reading anything negative regarding that relationship. Very quickly, for, again, a variety of reasons we discussed, Linda is disliked, um, Heather Mills is disliked, and I really haven't seen too much negative coverage of Nancy, but to be quite honest, I have not paid that much attention to the coverage of Nancy either. There's there's been very little, really, because she doesn't give interviews, so I think that that is holding her in good stead, is the the fact that she doesn't seem to be interested in the, the fame aspect of it but but there's very little plus he's he's not quite the heartthrob that i mean i think we all want him to be happy right but you know there's there's a different dynamic right now right it's not like there were hundreds of 18 year old girls weeping outside the courthouse when he got married to nancy <laughs> exactly we're all kind of like oh good i'm glad he's happy right. and i hope we have better but uh, yeah, so there are so many other things I wanted to discuss. I, I had like Yoko, who we haven't talked about, who I would love to have talked about. And the, the John and Yoko relationship, which is, they're mythologizing. So, so confused their relationship and the, the discussion about her. But she, as much as we talked about Linda at the beginning, she deserves a better, more comprehensive look at, at Yoko Ono as artist as person than she's really ever received as well. I think that would tell us so much. And I think a lot of the problem is that, again, so many people approach her from one angle or another, and she's so polarizing. Okay, I'll wrap up here because this has been so wonderful. And I think we've had an amazing conversation. Thanks. I had a great time sitting and chatting and um, I appreciate it. Hello again. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Okay, so as promised, here are my reflections on the episode. When listening, one section that particularly stood out to me was our discussion about John's jealousy. 
I sort of felt a little uncomfortable because we spent considerable time calling attention to one of John's less admirable traits. And I kind of just wanted to jump in and say, look, this is not a criticism of John Lennon. He himself admitted that this was an issue for him, that this trait was a byproduct of his childhood, where he felt like he didn't get enough love and attention from his parents. And as a result, he, he had issues with jealousy. And additionally, current research suggests that jealousy is not even an inherently bad thing. It's human. Everybody feels it. And in healthy doses, it can serve as a reminder to cherish or prioritize something or someone. Additionally, it wasn't unique to Lennon either. McCartney could also apparently be jealous and possessive. I think it's even mentioned in the, the Davies book, the official Beatles biography. And in fact, given the extreme tightness of the Lennon-McCartney partnership and relationship, where they demanded primacy from each other, it was bound to elicit jealousy. Anyone who got between them or challenged their sense of being number one with each other was going to create issues in their relationship. And it did. And it was present on both sides. However, it was apparently a more pronounced trait on Lennon's side, again, probably due to the instability of his early childhood. So no judgment. But I also understood why we called attention to this and why Erin was very clear about this. It was to highlight that it was a factor at play in the breakup and probably always in the relationship, but specifically and importantly in the breakup period. And in some ways, John's jealousy has been underrepresented or underconsidered in the story, which is kind of odd because John is the one who wrote a song called Jealous Guy. He himself admitted in interviews that jealousy and possessiveness were his issues in relationships. He was very open about it. And McCartney flagged this as a fairly pervasive issue in their relationship at the end. And actually, I interviewed Ray Connolly, and even he said he tried to promote this as a real issue in the relationship, but it got no play and coverage. So it's not like this is a secret, yet this element isn't really taken probably as seriously as it should be as an element in the breakup. Actually, uh, let me restate that because I guess to some extent the Beatles story does take this element into account in that some of Lennon's actions at the end of the Beatles are attributed to professional jealousy you know, the idea that McCartney had taken his leadership away from him, that he was jealous that McCartney had done this. Or it's at play with the idea that McCartney was more productive and never stopped coming up with new songs and hits, that he had this well at that time that maybe Lennon didn't. So, you know, that that is kind of folded in to the story. But jealousy is a complex idea. It can be the feeling when you think somebody's trying to take what's yours. But it can also involve the taking away or the appearing to take away the affection of a loved one. It is here that only McCartney's jealousy is considered. I mean, how much time is spent on the Paul, John and Linda triangle versus the Paul, John and Yoko triangle? Very little. In fact, Erin and I discussed this in part two of our conversation and now that I'm thinking about it, maybe I really will put it on Patreon, just a snippet of that, because it was interesting. But basically, we just marveled at how underexplored this dynamic has been and how Linda McCartney is basically ignored in this situation, despite the fact that she came in around the time of Ono and remained Paul's beloved wife and muse for the rest of her life, you know, for the next 30 years and, and onwards. 
And in fact, I recall in Linda McCartney's unauthorized biography by Danny Fields, he commented and editorialized that Lennon probably never gave a thought to Linda McCartney, which shows how pervasive this notion is that Lennon just didn't care about McCartney's mate. When nothing could be further from the truth, in episode six of the breakup series, we detail some of the many ways Lennon acted out against Linda McCartney. And he was much more publicly critical of her at this time than McCartney was of Ono. Lennon is the one who went on record saying that he didn't find her particularly attractive, too tweedy, questioned her skills as a photographer, called her family animals, and wrote funeral over Paul and Linda's wedding photo, and predicted the imminent breakdown of their marriage repeatedly. He also obliquely referred to Paul and Linda's marriage and Paul's focus on family as the reason for the Beatles breakup in the St. Regis article. And again, I'm not calling this out to say, look how terrible Lennon is. What a jealous guy. In fact, I don't doubt that McCartney said exactly the same types of things about Yoko behind closed doors. I'm just highlighting how wrongheaded it is to focus all of our attention on McCartney's reaction to Lennon and Ono and not consider Lennon's reaction to McCartney and Eastman. And of course, in fact, there's a montage in the film Get Back of the Paul John and Yoko triangle, and Peter Jackson does a montage of John loves Yoko while Paul is playing Strawberry Fields in the background. Well, that's not actually the scene. You know, that is Jackson's editorializing. And I would say that he's following the mainstream narrative in providing that little piece there. But of course, all of this focus on Lennon and Ono and McCartney, and none of the focus on Lennon, McCartney, and Eastman probably stems from this wrongheaded belief that Lennon was really disinterested in the Beatles uh, by the end of the 60s and only interested in Ono. But his actions provide absolutely otherwise. I mean, you only have to look at how do you sleep to understand there was still a lot of emotion there. And of course, it is this podcast's clear perspective that the idea that Lennon didn't care is complete nonsense and myth-making at its best, and that, in fact, when you dig deeper, there is tons of evidence to suggest that Lennon and McCartney remained equally invested in each other during and after the breakup. Even as Aaron said, this assumption that John's jealousy was only in relation to Ono is irrational and uh, not persuasive. I mean, it's just not human nature. John's going to be jealous about any of the people that are most important to him. And John did write the song Jealous Guy, and if McCartney is to be believed, it's about him. But even if you don't believe that, the song clearly describes how Lennon reacts or overreacts when he feels like he's losing someone's love and attention. He gets insecure, overreacts, lashes out, and then he feels terrible and remorseful, which sounds familiar. So to go back to the story in relation to jealousy, I'm sure there was always a little professional envy and jealousy between Lennon and McCartney because there was always a rivalry. But I suspect that for a long time, it was more of an admiration for each other's talents. Perhaps they saw the other strength as complementary and really as part of their own while they were under the joint banner of Lennon and McCartney. But as they fractured, it might have turned more to envy or jealousy. But at the same time, I suspect that doing things that made the other jealous would have been only truly meaningful if the other was impressed or there to witness it. So, you know, it's it's not about getting approval externally. It's also important that they uh, witness each other's strengths. Oh,
One other way that I suspect that jealousy manifested in their relationship is when one wanted to do something independent of the other. McCartney in the early to mid-60s says that jealousy doesn't really exist between them. And again, maybe in those early days, it was it was something else. He said that, you know, John doing a film without them was fine and him doing the score without John was fine. But of course, we know that uh, John actually wasn't fine with McCartney doing the score. I suspect this was potentially more of a Lennon thing that he would get a little insecure when McCartney would go off and do things without him because, again, of his own uh, childhood issues. A little bit of a sense of, why are you okay doing this without me? Don't you need me? Um And when you read McCartney's comments in the book, The Lyrics, about the song Dear Friend, he does actually wonder if Lennon is acting out because he's afraid of McCartney doing something without him. But of course, this was also at play with McCartney, too. We can see that when Lennon started to do things with Yoko Ono, that McCartney seems to have had his nose a little bit uh, out of joint. And of course, this is normal. This is just part of being human. But it was at play in their relationship. Again, it's sort of the function of the intensity of their relationship. I talk about this issue of jealousy, both sides, the envy and the interpersonal relationship type of jealousy in an episode that I did on Patreon when I did a deep dive into the interview McCartney did for the podcast Fly in the Wall with Dana Carvey and David Spade. This issue of jealousy actually came up in this episode, probably because these comedians are so hyper aware of how prevalent uh, it is among artists and performers, even those who love each other but are competitive. And so they asked McCartney about this, and McCartney admitted that he almost wanted to bury his songs in this period because he didn't want to ignite any jealousy. And they discussed this, and then it kind of took a a turn to the more personal issues between Lennon and McCartney, um, which again shows the interconnectedness. There was some professional envy and jealousy, but there was also the jealousy of anybody who got between them. So if you want to check that out, that's on um, Patreon. I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to lure people to Patreon. I, what I did is I actually cut in um, commentary about that episode, so I'm not entirely sure I could even play that outside of uh, Patreon. But if you want to check it out, it's there. Anyways, but I suspect the more insidious aspect of jealousy was the possessive type, the type that's at play in relationships when attention or love is being taken away. This is what John describes in the song Jealous Guy, that you might not love me anymore, you were trying to hide, I was shivering inside, all of these things. So he's describing the feeling afraid of losing somebody's love. And at various times, Paul has addressed this. He has said that their relationship, his relationship with Lennon, was so intense that it almost could not exist at that level with the addition of a really significant romantic partner, especially when that romantic partner was possessive. That in that case, it had to be one or the other. And basically it was that that led to the breakdown of their partnership. So this idea of jealousy is incredibly important because it gets to the crux of their breakdown. Their connection was so intense, their need to be number one with each other was so intense that when a significant woman came into their lives and demanded equal time, it led to the breakdown of their partnership. 
Now, of course, when these women came in, there already was a fracture. So I think there was multiple things at play here. But uh, McCartney has addressed this issue in different ways over the years. And this is what he told the Chicago Tribune in 1984 about his partnership with Lennon in the breakup period. He said, then also, we were like married, so you got the bitterness. It's not a woman scored this time, it's two men scorned probably even worse. And I had to make way for Yoko. My relationship with John could not have remained as it was. And Yoko feels secure. Again, I'll say that again. Then also, we were like married. So you got the bitterness. It's not a woman scored this time. It's two men scorned, probably even worse. And I had to make way for Yoko. My relationship with John could not have remained as it was. And Yoko feels secure. And you're probably thinking, what you just said that it wasn't all about John, Paul, and Yoko. And I don't think it was because he says it's two men scorned, which suggests that both John and Paul were reacting to other people in their lives. And then Paul calls out Yoko because he says that Yoko could not be secure with him in the picture. And I think that suggests that Yoko was the one that was more possessive and potentially less secure Linda McCartney is never at play here because she seems to have always been supportive of Lennon McCartney at all times, late 60s and all throughout the 70s. She seemed to have been completely supportive of them reconciling, which shows that she was not threatened, perhaps because she was just incredibly grounded, but also maybe because she saw her career as separate from Paul's. I don't know, but for whatever reason, Linda never seems threatened by Lennon-McCartney in the way that Yoko does. Also, John and Yoko were more similar with their need to merge and their insecurity, you know? But that doesn't mean the love triangle only existed in one way. The difference is that it's more from John towards Linda than in reverse. And also, one other thing to note in this is Paul says, I had to make way for Yoko, which is something in the breakup series that we noticed that Paul eventually gave way to Yoko. He bowed out. And, you know, to be generous, potentially, it was because he wanted John to be happy. He also tried to set them back up in the 70s. So even though there was a lot of jealousy at play with McCartney, as there was with Lennon, I do actually think he also, in some ways, was supportive of that relationship. Nevertheless, Paul suggested that two relationships could not coexist at this time that his relationship with John could not have remained as it was, and so they had to separate, which they did. But interestingly, I think they found that despite the separation, that their relationship did not end despite the incorporation of new mates, because they did seem to miss and long for their connection throughout the 70s, perpetually toying with the idea of getting back together, which is probably because what they had with each other was a little different than what they had with their wives. Uh, I think it's understandable that they needed time to bond with their wives outside of the intensity of their partnership. I think this was probably an issue uh, with uh, Jane Asher that, you know, McCartney was always one foot in and one foot out and prioritizing Lennon, whereas Cynthia, who actively and outwardly said that she took a backseat to the Beatles and McCartney, so, you know, I think that they were probably at a bit of a stalemate there. But when we've got both Yoko and Linda coming in, both strong women, they do separate. But then they find that their connection is still there because it was something different. 
But still, it's understandable that they needed time to get over their jealousies and work out a new equilibrium. Whether they could have achieved this is the issue. I suspect this was actually the major issue in reconciling in the 70s, whether or not they could have uh, worked together at a lesser intensity, I guess was the question. I personally think that they probably could have done it in the long run if their mates had been amenable, but who knows? But this is all to say that understanding and acknowledging the issue of jealousy on both sides is important because it plays into the downfall of their partnership. And by the way, when I home in on one of these issues, it sounds dramatic. And, uh, you know, there was some drama. I think that they were both hurt by this jealousy. But at the same time, I think they were having a ball with their mates. I think Paul had a fabulous time with Linda and John had a ball with Yoko. So both of these things can be going on at the same time. And for the record, this jealousy and possessiveness was not relegated to Lennon and McCartney. In fact, in the 70s, Ringo Starr admitted in an interview that all the Beatles were possessive of each other and they didn't really like other people getting between them. So, you know, this is really a byproduct of their extreme closeness, both as a band and as a partnership. So that's my thought piece on jealousy and comments. So please feel free to reach out. Thanks again. Lots of love. Until next time. Bye-bye. Take me back where I